Thank you. You can go ahead and be seated. Uh, we are so glad to be with you tonight. And um, would it be okay, Pastor Mark, if I shared kind of a spiritual experience I had today? Uh, there's already suspicion whether this is true or not. But Are they taping it? Was that on purpose? No, it's on. Okay. Well, um, so I was sitting on the runway today. I had this, I don't know if you'd call it a mini vision. But this guy, he was about 86 years old. And he, he looked like Pastor Mark. In the years coming. In, in years now. coming. Yeah, not now. It kind of, if you can kind of age progress Pastor Mark to age 86. And... Um, it was a wedding anniversary. Tall, dark, and handsome. Eh, anyway. Um, <laughs> so it was a wedding anniversary, and you were, looked like Brenda at, I don't know how old you'll be when he's 86. I know not to go there, but I saw them kind of sitting on the couch, and Mark had a, I don't know, loving, amorous thought, and he looked over at, the, I think it was Mark and Brenda. I can't say for sure, but... The guy said, it's 60th anniversary, and the guy said to the lady, he said, after 60 years, I found you tried and true. And the lady said, what? <laughs> and this guy that looked like Mark at, Pastor Mark at age 86 said, after 60 years, I found you tried and true. And the lady that looked like Brenda, age progressed, said, Well, after 60 years, I'm tired of you, too. Like I said, that was just kind of a vision, a mini vision or something I had. It could have been the airport food. <laughs> oh, mercy. Well, we're glad to be with you tonight. And, um, you know, this is a... Uh, a special night. And, and I'm glad there's a variety of people here. You know, there's folks here that are married. There's folks here that are single. And, um, you know, probably folks from every, every um, experience in life. And we just want you to know you're all loved. You're all welcome. And I always kind of feel funny at, at marriage conference because I've seen things before where the couple gets up there and they act like Barbie and Ken. You know, like they're this perfect couple that's never had an argument and just they get up there and, you know, they just act cheesy and plastic and fake. And and um, and then I've seen other things where, you know, they assume that everybody in the room is on the verge of divorce and, you know, hates each other and, you know, things like that. And, you know, and the truth of the matter is people are at all, you know, there's probably some folks here tonight. You're just having the time of your life in your marriage. Uh, there may be some folks that you are, you know, legitimately struggling in marriage. There's folks here who are looking to get married. There's, uh, you know, folks here probably that have been through painful situations relative to marriage and are asking questions about, you know, would you even want to be married again? You know, things like that. But what we want to do is we want to share things in these sessions tonight and in the sessions tomorrow that, that we believe will help communicate a healthy, realistic um, perspective of marriage and a view of what does God want to work into our lives to make our marriages healthy. 
And so Lisa and I are not here by any means as Ken and Barbie to, you know, present to you that we have the, you know, the flawless, perfect marriage. I'm, I'm always suspicious of people that say, we've been married 30 years and never had a disagreement. I just don't trust those people. I just don't trust them. And, uh, or I think one of them's been in a coma for like 29 years and, and 11 months. So, um, at any rate, before we begin, let's go ahead and pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for every person, every couple, every individual that's here tonight. And Father, we present our marriages, our lives before you. Father, we believe that you are truly the author and the architect of marriage. And therefore, Father, you have the right to define what it is. And you have the authority to give us instruction as to how we can have a marriage, a relationship that really reflects the love of Jesus toward the church and the honor that the church shows toward the Lord Jesus. Father, we want our marriages and our lives to be healthy and wholesome, and we want them to glorify you. And so, Father, we present our lives before you and our marriages before you. And, Lord, we present ourselves to you as teachable. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to identify any traits in our own hearts, our own lives that are inclined towards selfishness or any toxicity in our lives that, that would make a marriage unhealthy or that would cause pain in, in the life of our partner. Father, we want to be aware of that. We want to be a blessing to our spouse, uh, not a curse. Lord, we want health. We want the life and the love of God and the freedom of the Spirit to reign in our homes and our families. And Father, we just thank you that where there is pain, where there is strife, where there is division, that Lord, you're going to give us wisdom and insight to help bring and facilitate healing and health into our lives and into our marriages. And we thank you for it. We pray that you'll be glorified through the changes and the growth and the development that occurs in our lives over these next couple of days. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. Well, one of the things that Lisa and I like to do, we have been married for 34 years. We just had our 34th anniversary. Thank you very much. And um, I saw somebody doing that. That's why I was saying thank you. And um, we have two kids, uh, a daughter who's 29, a son who's 26. And, um, and so we, we actually do. We like each other. We love each other. We, we are each other's best friends. But we have not had a flawless, perfect marriage. We've had all kinds of issues to work through, just like I think everybody does. And, um, but everybody's got a story. And we're just going to open up just so you'll know where we are coming from in our particular comments and remarks. We want to share a little bit about our story, how we met. Uh, what our family backgrounds were, because when you marry somebody, you don't just marry that individual. You're kind of marrying their entire history and their families and, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, they have a lot of uh, things in their mind and their perspective from their upbringing, their family of origin. So uh, we just wanted to maybe in opening up, share with you just a little bit about our journey and, and our background. So do you want to sure. kind of take, take off from there? All right. Well, in the late 70s, Kokomo, Indiana, if you know where Indianapolis is, Kokomo is a little town. It's not like the Beach Boys song, by the way. Uh, it's a factory town about 50 miles north of Indianapolis. 
and both Tony and I grew up there, but we went to different schools. I went to the reigning champion city school, and he went to the country school that just never, you know, could quite beat the big team. And you're five so, times bigger than But we didn't were. know each other growing up. Uh, what, what happened was the um, baptism of the Holy Spirit came through Kokomo, and there was a lot of young people, uh, high school-aged kids, that were spirit-filled going to denominational churches, and they were all looking for the more, you know, in fellowship. And so what happened was after we both graduated from high school, we both ended up at this same Bible study. And um, we met. I was playing guitar. I was leading worship, and he was beginning to teach at that time. And you'd just been saved. Yeah, spirit oh, not filled, spirit filled, yeah, not for saved. For a few months. For a few months. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were just kind of getting into ministry together. Great friends. Our relationship started as friends. And so I had this idea, gee, Tony would make a great guy for my sister, my younger sister. Because I'm a year older than Tony is, and my sister's two years younger than me. And so I thought, oh, that'd be perfect, you know. So that's, that was my mindset, you know, going into all this. But we started working together in ministry, you know, worship leader and a preacher. They worked together pretty well in different settings. And he started getting asked to speak at his college. And, and he'd ask me, he'd say, can you come and lead worship before I do this chapel service? Ulterior motives. We had. But you know what? We clicked together. And a lot of that was due to the friendship that we had developed and the fellowship that we had in our Christianity. And so working together then, we things started to shift and change. And... Um, I remember the Lord had spoken to me, and please, our story is not the example, you know, that we would never want to present it like, if your story isn't like our story, then your story isn't good enough, or your story wasn't founded on the right foundations, or anything crazy like that. Each one of us has our own story. I'm just telling you our story. And I don't recommend this particularly to young people, because what happened was the Lord had spoken to me and said, You're going to be married soon. Well, I had just come from this little trip that I'd been on, you know, where the Lord had said that to me. And I was meeting Tony because he was playing tennis at my college at the time. And she was not romantically interested in me. Go figure. Go figure. So I tell him this, and I didn't realize it, but he told me later that his heart dropped. Yeah. Because I didn't say it was him, <laughs> you know. And back yeah. in that time, we were real prophetic. You understand? You know, when you get first get started in the things of God, everything, everything's a prophecy. So, anyways, but what happened was, as time went on, um, we kept doing things mm-hmm. together. And honestly, the Lord did say to me, "You're going to marry Tony." This was before we dated. This was before we talked about it. And he had been saying the same thing to Tony. And so one magical evening, mm-hmm. we tentatively broached the subject about, you know... Well, fearfully broached the subject. Yeah, fearfully, yeah. Very, both of us. And I think, was it you that started it that said, at one time yeah. I thought... Yeah, I was, I was afraid of, of her, you know, kind of like laughing and rejecting and all that. So instead of saying, I feel this is what the Lord is saying, because that would have made me real vulnerable... Uh, I said, you know, kind of jokingly, you know, well, one time I thought that maybe God was saying such, a, so that if she burst out laughing, then I could just say, yeah, isn't that silly? And, you know, I wouldn't have put my heart out there. So, but anyways, he said that and I said, yeah, I kind of think 
along you, those you lines. You said I thought that as well. I thought that as well. So we were still keeping yeah. it in the past tense, weren't we? Yeah. But what happened was the Lord did, you know, just it just dawned on both of us. We really are supposed to be together. So we better start dating, you know. And, and so we did. We started dating. Yeah. But we knew from the beginning that we were going to end up together. So it was almost like we were engaged yeah. from... Be, before we started dating. Yeah. It, it was just the way it happened. And I can't say that for anybody else, but that was the way it happened for us. Yeah. And we knew each other a full two years before we actually That's you know, true. got married. That's true. We didn't married, get married so. right away. So. Um, but one of the things that was very interesting, and, and what Lisa shared about, you know, this is just our story. Um, you know, where, whatever your background is, the enemy's going to try to do different things to undermine you. And maybe in your background, you know, um, you met the person you married in a bar, you know, and you're both drunk at the time. And, and then when you get married, you know, then and maybe get saved or something afterwards, uh, then the devil says, well, see, you're, you are totally on the wrong foundation, you know. And, and don't let the enemy tell you that because you didn't have the most glorious foundation that, that God can't bless your marriage. Because God can take people from all kinds of, you know, horrific backgrounds and if people will, you know, yield their hearts to God, you know, he can do a deep work in their lives, even though they didn't maybe have the right foundation to begin with, God can put that foundation in there. And so don't let anything that we say, you know, be any kind of comparative thing or, or with anybody else, you know. Um, so, uh, but one of the things that was interesting, Billy Graham made this statement. He said that good marriages are not made in heaven. They're made on earth. And so even if you have some kind of, you know, maybe you have a deal like Lisa's and mine where, you know, you felt like God was leading you together. Can I tell you, that is no guarantee of a successful marriage. And you can have a situation where you didn't get started on the right foundation at all. But after you really turn your heart to God, um, you look to God for the right to become the right person. So many people are looking for the right person. They forget to be the right person. And um, so you can begin to look to God as a couple, even if you got started on a terrible foundation. And God can put the right stuff in each of you to where you can have a phenomenal marriage. So Billy Graham's statement that good marriages are not made in heaven, they're made on earth. What I think he was trying to say is that... You have to do the right stuff in your relationship. You know, you've got to have the right attitude toward your spouse. You've got to speak the right words to your spouse. Uh, it, you invest every day in your relationship something. And if you invest the right things in your relationship, then God's going to easily bless your marriage. But there's no such thing as God. He doesn't just wave a magic wand over your marriage and, and wow, you have a, you know, princess, prince type marriage, uh, you have to build the right things into it. And uh, one of the things that Lisa and I learned early in our relationship was that we had come from very, very different backgrounds. And um, we got married when we were 20 and 21 years of age. So, you know, we got married very young. And I think the advantage of getting married young is that you're real flexible. The disadvantage of getting married young is that you're real dumb. <laughs> and we were. 
And um, the, the advantage of getting married later is that you've got a lot more life experience and things like that. But then you can have a disadvantage of maybe being more set in your ways and not being as flexible. Those are all generalizations. So, again, if you got married young and, you know, that type of thing, don't sit there and think, well... Well, I should have waited and got married later. If you got married later, why? Well, I wish I should have gotten married younger. It is what it is. And um, Satan always wants to keep you looking on the other side of the fence, think, making you think you missed it somehow. And God just wants you to do the best you can with what you have to work with. And if you'll do the best you can with what you have to work with, God will bless it. And, uh, you know, that type of thing. But we found out that we had extremely different backgrounds. Um, and I don't know, it, maybe when you're older you have more of an awareness of that, but I didn't really even think about my family background dynamics until I got well into our marriage and I began to kind of realize, you know, she is really different than me. And she has some really different expectations about marriage. And... Um, I, I'll just give you a quick scenario, and, and I want we're, we're both going to talk about our family backgrounds a little bit, and um, if we say anything that even sounds negative, uh, we're not trying to be critical, but you know we need to be realistic about life, and um, we both love and honor our parents. My mom and dad are in heaven. Her mom and dad are still alive. Um, we do not want our parents to get these tapes, I guarantee you. Um, <laughs> And I am, I am personally praying that um, my parents are very occupied in heaven and can't hear what I'm going to say. So, no, I, I don't want in any way, shape, or form, I, I don't want, I'm not going to be negative about my parents. But just, you know, it is what it is. And um, I grew up in a home where there was not a lot of emotional closeness. Um, very little showing of emotion or affection or anything like that. I had three brothers. They're all older. And um, so our family, uh, we're all big time into sports. So my brothers and I were all kind of competitive, but in a good way. But, um, you know, it, it was kind of every man for himself. You know, there wasn't a lot of, there was nothing clingy in our home, um, you know, we didn't share our feelings in our home, you know, or things like that. Um, everybody was just pretty much independent. You took care of yourself and, uh, and that type of thing. And so when I got married, I was quite, you know, kind of geared toward being very independent and nice but distant, you know, kind of, you know, learned how to be kind of professional and that type of thing, but she didn't really let anybody close emotionally. Um, years later, when Lisa, you know, said something to the effect that, you know, I didn't, you know, wasn't very good about expressing or sharing my feelings, I didn't know what to do with that at all. And so what I did uh, for a while was I just thought, well, okay, so I started putting the word feel in sentences. Like I would say, I feel like a sandwich. <laughs> and I thought I was sharing my feelings because I would say, you know, I feel tired. I feel like going to bed now. And I thought I, thought I had really made a breakthrough in um, deep, heartfelt communication. But 
I realized I couldn't just say, you know, you can't just change I want a sandwich to I feel like having a sandwich and then say you're sharing your feelings. I, I thought that worked. It didn't work. So why don't you go ahead and share your background. Okay. Well, my mom and dad, um, our life started out good. Uh, I have a brother and a sister, and our early years were really happy. Um, I have very good memories of that. But what happened when I was about 10 years old, um, and I'm the oldest, my dad found another woman. And so a couple of years later, my mom and dad did get divorced. And it was pretty traumatic because my dad married this lady pretty quickly after the divorce. And we all, even as young as we were, we knew what was going on. Our mom was pretty good about it. She uh, really encouraged us to keep a relationship with our dad, even though at the time he was far more interested in developing his relationship with this lady uh, as opposed to developing it with his kids, which was really hard on us. But um, mom was good. She, um, she wasn't happy with him by any means, but she was good about encouraging us to keep a relationship. So I can say I still have a good relationship with my dad, even though I did not approve of the things that he did. And, you know, it's been very difficult. But what happened then was when dad left the family, my sister, my brother, and my mother and I became, I mean, like super close, like scary close. And they call it enmeshed in the psychology world. And that's where you are, you feel each other's feelings and you're so intertwined with each other that you don't know where you begin and they begin and you stop and they stop kind of a thing, you know. So we were, all, and that was a coping mechanism for us. We were devastated. Um, it, it was very difficult in those days to keep going, so that's what we did. That's how we managed life at the time. Well, that just, you know, for years, and it still is pretty much that way. You know, we're still pretty much enmeshed. So I come into my marriage expecting the same kind of thing with Tony. I wanted to yeah, be just happen. really close, <laughs> you know, like this all the time because yeah. that's how my family was. Yeah. And I felt smothered. I, I did. I felt completely smothered. And, and I didn't know what was going on because, you know, I'd grown up my whole life with, you know, my brothers. And, we'd, you know, we'd be friendly but kind of on a superficial level. And um, then all of a sudden, Lisa's wanting to share every moment, every thought, every feeling. Not just my own. I wanted him yeah. to share all his moments, all his feelings. Yeah, so too. like when I would come home and she'd say, how was your day? I said, fine. Mm. And I, I thought that, you know, what do you mean we're not communicating? I told you the day went fine. Mm. And um, so she felt, you know, when I would kind of pull away and... I guess we didn't, I didn't physically have a man cave because we had a small apartment in the early years. <laughs> That's true. But, you know, you there can, have, no space you can have an emotional man cave yes. even if you don't have a physical man cave. Very true. And so I would spend all this time, you know, withdrawn and, um, you know, and, and the two guys, you know, when they get married. Two guys when they get married? No, 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 no. <laughs> when a guy gets married. Jet lag. Yeah, when a guy gets married, in his mind, it's over. He's achieved. He's got the conquest. The ring is on the finger, and he did it. And now he's looking for his next conquest, 
which very often is now profession, career, things like that. When, when the man goes to the altar and says, I do, what he means is, it's done. <laughs> yeah, it is finished. And, but li- listen, let me tell you this. The ladies think that all that stuff you did beforehand, they think it's going to continue. <laughs> poems, you know, different uh-huh. things like that. Tony was such a good poem writer. Yeah, I wrote poems oh, and different yeah, things like really that. Good ones. But man, when you get married, it's just like there's some off switch. <laughs> And then now your, your, your focus is on career and success and all that type of thing. And, um, you know, and, and it really is, I mean, it's a very natural tendency. And the wife thinks the, the, the romance and all that is going to continue. And the guy just kind of shifts his attention elsewhere. And so I think in marriage, you know, probably both husband and wife are probably guilty of a lot of bait and switch. You know what I'm talking about? And so we have to go back and, you know, ask ourselves, you know, you know, did I give my spouse the impression? And I know things change, but sometimes we have to kind of go back to our basic foundation. And, and I had to begin asking the question, you know, what, see, a lot of times in marriage we think, well, I have a right to expect this. And we become expectors in marriage. And, and so, especially if we're kind of high perfectionistic people or real selfish people, then we want our spouse to meet all of our expectations. And then we're frustrated if she doesn't or he doesn't. But the reality is God wants us to be investors in our marriage. And the question I had to begin and I had to learn how to ask was what does my wife have a right to expect? You know, and, and, and I kind of came to this conclusion that I probably, because of the way I'm hardwired, I probably will never be, you know, kind of able to connect absolutely on her level of emotional depth. But I can do better than saying I feel like a sandwich. <laughs> So I had to learn how to, I had to learn how to do some things to meet what really were reasonable expectations on her part. But, you know, she had to come to terms with the fact that, you know, she kind of married somebody that wasn't wired that way. And I've had over the years, I've had to ask her a lot to coach me and help me, you know, learn how to say things you know, I, a few times, especially early in our marriage, before I reached, you know, the perfection that I am in now, um, I would say things, I would say things that were, that were upsetting to Lisa. And I would just make this comment, and the next thing I know, she's kind of got her feelings all hurt. And I'm thinking, what? You know, and, you know, she would explain to me, and and my natural tendency was to get defensive. And after a while, I thought, you know, it doesn't help to get defensive about it. What I need to do is say, honey, you know, forgive me. You know, a lot of times you need to apologize even if you don't even know if you did anything wrong. Just do it. Um, just do it. But just apologize. Just assume it's your fault. And, um, 
But I would apologize, and then I'd say, honey, I'm, I'm apparently really dense here. I've said that before, haven't I? I said, I am apparently really dense here. So help me understand my blind spot. And I think that one of the great keys to a, a great marriage is being humble enough to acknowledge that you've got some blind spots. Don't always be on the defensive. It's not a matter, I'm right, you're wrong. That will never improve your marriage. Uh, it, 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 it's not a matter. Marriage is the only game in life where both people win or both people lose. There is no such thing as winning an argument in your marriage. Either you both win or you both lose. So, you have any thoughts on that? Oh, um, were you going to talk about your family? Well, yeah. Um, just kind of did. Yeah, I, I mentioned it, but you know, like I, I remember, you know, never seeing any affection or emotional, you know, real tenderness and things like that. So that type of thing was really foreign to me, and I had to learn how, you know, to be affectionate and, you know, things like that. And communicate because and your communicate. parents didn't communicate with yeah. each other at all. Yeah. At least not that you kids could see. Yeah, and my parents were married for 60-some years. So they never went through a divorce physically. Um, but I grew up, even though my parents, you know, their marriage was intact, I grew up in a home that was more separated. Lisa's parents went through a divorce but then she and her mom and sister and brother got super close. So it was kind of a, you know, funny deal that way. Yeah, we were opposite ends of the spectrum. I think we made that point. Yeah, yeah. Well. So, but one of the things that, that worked, uh, I think, helpful toward us is that we, Lisa and I both, made some significant decisions in our marriage. Some of the decisions we made... Uh, were made before we got married. Other decisions we made were decisions we made after marriage. And we're going to share with you uh, what, are, what we think are the five most important decisions that each of us made respectively concerning our marriages. So why don't you go ahead and start? Okay. This is kind of a fun exercise. We don't give, when we do marriage conferences, we don't give assignments or anything. But here's a suggestion to you. If you'd like to do an assignment kind of thing this weekend together, um, come up with five decisions. You'll hear each of our sets. But between the two of you, come up or, you know, do it maybe separately and then have dinner and bring your five decisions to each other and share them. It's just kind of a fun exercise. Five things, simple, five things that you commit to doing. My first one was that, um, and this was before I got married, uh, that I would be a godly wife. You know, I was, like, a, like we were talking about earlier, filled with the Spirit, really on fire. You know, remember those days when I mean every minute just sparkled in life. And so I was burning to be a godly wife. But in that Philippians 3, 12 through 14 kind of sense, you know, that pressing toward the mark, because I... I'm well aware of my shortcomings, so I, I always know that I'm pressing towards that goal of being a godly wife. I wanted to be a Proverbs 31 woman. You know, I, I was in love with this teacher, so all the scripture verses and everything meant a lot to me. 
Um, I wanted to be submissive, like Ephesians 5.22 tells us. And it helped. One year I read, uh, actually this lady brought this to me um, after we had done a marriage conference. This was years ago. But uh, she brought a book to me where submission was defined as meaning yielding your preference where principle is not involved. If my husband tells me that I am going to drive the getaway car while he robs the bank, I can tell him no. (laughs) But if my husband says, I don't want you to paint that room purple, then I'm I'm going to yield to his preferences there. Or I'm going to yield my preferences, and, and I'm going to come up with another color that we both like, that we both can live with. So it's that kind of thing in being submissive. Somebody in your relationship has to make the decision at some point when you're coming to a point you want one thing he wants the other thing somebody has to make the decision usually and if you can't come to a mutual agreement then wives and unless he asks you to rob that bank um you yield you yield to that and then the consequences of that decision, you know, he's responsible whether that decision was the right one or not. But it just keeps the relationship going better when, when there's a yieldedness actually to each other. Yeah. That works the best. So I wanted that. And, and then I wanted to seek to have a meek and quiet spirit and uh, letting that inward beauty that the Bible talks about. I wanted that to be a part, something that I brought to the marriage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's true when Lisa says that about not robbing a bank. Now, if he asks you to rob a convenience store, that's another deal. No, I'm kidding. Um, just kidding. One, one thing that I wanted to add, and Lisa has done a phenomenal job over the years of being a godly wife and a godly mom and setting a great example for the kids and things like that. Um, and when she talks about submission, she made a really good delineation between principle and preference because uh, if somebody asks you to do violate something that's contrary to one of God's principles you don't submit to that because you're submitted to a higher authority but even on the preferences guys I would encourage you um, don't just demand that every preference be your way you know I, I don't think you're wise if you know you kind of stake out all these areas well that's not principle so I get to be the you know, dictator in chief here. And um, I find that if I endeavor to carry myself in a way that I'm honoring her preferences a lot, then once in a while, you know, there's maybe something where I will, you know, go ahead and say, honey, I really think we need to do this. And, and she's very, you know, good to go along with that because I'm not doing that all the time of trying to override. I think most all of our decisions are partnership decisions. And I think that's a really good way. The, the first decision that I made, um, and I believe I made this decision too before we got married, was I made the decision that my wedding vows were not simply for the wedding ceremony, but that my wedding vows were really marriage vows. And I, as a pastor who uh, spent 20 years in pastoral ministry, um, and I was always amazed that, you know, the amount of money and time that people would put into weddings. And, uh, and that's fine. Yeah, I don't mind somebody having a, you know, fabulous glittery wedding if that's what they want to do. But it's amazing how much money, time, energy, and effort 
people would put into a 30 or 40 minute event, but they really wouldn't invest much in what was going to be their, you know, 50 or 60 year marriage. And so if you want to have a glitzy wedding, that's fine, but just invest a lot into your marriage, not just your wedding ceremony. And so, you know, these things that you say to each other during a wedding ceremony, I will love you. I will honor you. I will cherish you. I will, this is very important, I will keep myself only unto you so long as we both shall live. Um, You know, those are marriage vows, not just wedding vows. And, you know, one of the things we've learned about in the Word of Faith movement is the significance of covenant and the significance of the spoken word. And, you know, we talk about, well, we want to move mountains with our words and things like that. And, and I, you know, I, I think all that's wonderful. But if we are not people of our own word, that we speak and we believe and we keep our word, then I don't know how much all these other spiritual things are even going to matter if we can't be true to our own word. And in, in a marriage, you'll have emotions and feelings that, you know, they come and go and are up and down. But if you, if you really are a person who lives, number one, by God's word, but number two, you live by your own word. Um, and so I just decided early on that my wedding vows were not simply going to be wedding vows. They were going to be marriage vows and that I would revisit those often and make sure that I'm living according to those vows. And I never wanted to hurt Tony or my husband, whoever I married. I didn't want to hurt them. I saw my father hurt my mother, and I never wanted to be the cause of that kind of hurt. Uh, So in my words, in my actions, with my pots and pans, I decided I would never hurt Tony. No spouse abuse. Uh, Our relationship did start as a friendship, and I always wanted to maintain that friendship. Friends don't hurt each other, at least not intentionally. And so that was my commitment, that I would not hurt him. Mm -hmm. I made the decision, I I probably made this a little bit after marriage, that my focus needed to not simply be on the status of our relationship, but on the quality of our relationship. Some people are, are absolutely in love with the idea of being married. And... um That can even be kind of a wrong pressure, motivating, driving thing for people to get married, maybe when it's not the wisest thing to do. Um, There was a survey done to determine who is happier, married couples or single people. And this organization interviewed hundreds and hundreds of married couples and hundreds and hundreds of single people. And to find out what, is, what was really their level of satisfaction in life. And how many of you think that married couples are happier than singles? Let me see your hand. Okay. How many of you think that singles are happier than married couples? Let me see your hand. Okay, a few more people voted for the married. How many of you figure this is some kind of trick question? <laughs> And so you're not going to answer. You're just going to wait and see what's it. Well, let me, let me tell you what the, the actual results were. The actual results were there was absolutely no difference whatsoever in the happiness level of marrieds and singles. 
But you know where the big difference was? There was a high percentage of married people who thought singles are happier. And there was a high percentage of singles who thought marrieds are happier. What does that tell us? The grass is always greener on the other side. And so, um, you know, don't focus on the status. If I could just get married, if I could just get married. A lot of people get married and they bring their own unhappiness into the marriage with them. They think another person is going to make me happy. What they don't realize, they're taking themselves into the marriage. And so they're taking in all of their own issues and things of that nature. And then when this other person doesn't become their savior and solve all their problems, they're disappointed. They start projecting rejection, disappointment toward them. So um, focus on the status of your relationship. I'm sorry, the quality of your relationship. And the way you focus on the quality of your relationship is you first of all focus on yourself. You know, and that may be a lifelong process. It probably is for all of us, is overcoming past dysfunction, you know, past wrong ways of thinking, selfish tendencies, fleshly tendencies. How many of you believe that um, you are still a work in progress? Let me see your hand. And um, if, if we will focus on getting ourselves in order and quit projecting all kinds of blame on our spouse because they're not making us happy. Sometimes we're expecting the spouse to be something to us that only Jesus can be to us anyway. And um, so focus on the, the quality of your relationship, not the health. And another part of this has to do with the private relationship versus the public relationship. Um, it is not okay to uh, treat everybody else better than your spouse. You know, and some people do that. They, uh, when they get out in public, at work, or at the civic club, or at church, they're just Mr. Charming, and they get behind closed doors, and um, they're not a very nice person. And so, you know, to project the idea, wanting everybody to think you've got this great marriage, but at home, you know, your wife knows that you're, um, you know, the madman of Gadara's cousin um, is not a good thing. All right. So focus on the, the health, not the status or the image. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, to keep a sense of humor, um, I have found that when we laugh at ourselves, when we laugh at our circumstances, life is just more pleasant. We don't take things too seriously. Obviously, you can tell that I married a comedian. And so the thing that keeps this boy happy is when I laugh at his jokes. Now, they are funny. when we have our most difficult times in our marriage uh-huh. is when I've lost my sense of humor. And, and I would say, wouldn't you say, like, if either of us have lost our sense of humor, mm-hmm. things can get pretty grim that way. And that's just not a pleasant way. So I think, you know... There are times where it's just life is not funny, and I get that. But for the most part, you really don't have to take yourself so seriously. And when things get a little crunchy, if you can find something to laugh at, it just, you know, laughter is the medicine, and it just lightens the atmosphere. And I think laughter probably sends the enemy off running. You know, if he sees that you're not getting all tensed up and, you know, been out of shape... He doesn't have an open door. So, 
Yeah, good. Um, I made the decision that good intentions toward marriage were not enough. Um, everybody gets married with good intentions, I think. But um, I found out that my good intentions would only carry me so far. And that is because there were certain skills in life that I did not have. I had to admit and, and acknowledge to myself that there were some areas where I was absolutely clueless on how to be a good husband to Lisa. And um, it meant that I had to humble myself and be honest to God and say, God, I don't know how to do some of this stuff. And had to read some books to learn some things. I had to humble myself and ask um, Lisa to coach me on, you know, how could I have said that better? Uh, let me tell you some of the skills that I specifically did not have. Um, I did not have good listening skills. Um, is that, you gonna, yes. that one about the newspaper? I'll leave that alone. Careful. All right. I'll let her, she's going to tell that one later. Um, I did not have good skills uh, in sensitivity. I remember that one time that, you know, she was sharing this deep frustration with me. And, um, and I, my phrase was, well, honey, just deal with it. That, that went over really good. That was one I of those. Laugh. That was one of those where that sense of humor thing yeah. kind of. It was out. It was just gone. deal with it didn't work. Nope. Um, sensitivity, understanding, communication. I didn't know how to communicate certain things. I didn't know how to work in teamwork with Lisa. Um, you know, I was used to sports and athletics and. And all that. So even though I did some teamwork skills, you know, with that, I didn't transfer some of that teamwork mentality into the marriage very well. Um, so, and, and a big part of this is um, the skills that I realized I had to learn that I'm sure I'm still working on in many areas, but uh, was I had to acknowledge that I could not mindlessly replicate the behavior that I saw in my home growing up. I couldn't just say, well, that's the way dad always did it. You know, love my dad, wonderful man in many, many regards. But there were some areas of the marriage that, um, and, you know, and he probably didn't have a good example, you know, when he grew up. And so, but, you know, how many generations are we going to carry this stuff on? And at what point are we going to say, and I, one thing I learned, if you're going to break patterns that maybe have been in your home for a long time, um, there are three things that have to happen. Number one, you have to recognize what the problem is. You know, that if, if you're a lady and you just grew up and your mom just nagged the daylights out of your dad, if you don't realize that's a problem, you're going to do the same thing. You've got to realize that wasn't right. If you grew up in a home where your dad was harsh and, uh, you know, intolerant and demeaning, and, you know, verbally or emotionally abuse, if you don't recognize that's a problem, you're probably going to repeat it. So you've got to recognize the problem. Number two, you have to resolve. Recognize, resolve. You've got to resolve, you know what, that abusive, that nagging, that neglect, that womanizing, that whatever behavior uh, was wrong. Number two, I resolve that it stops. 
with the previous generation. And then number three, if you don't do this, the first two may not be enough. You've got to replace it. You've got to replace it. You can't just leave a vacuum there. You can't just say, well, I'm not going to be a womanizer. You've got to say, I'm going to be madly in love with my wife. And I'm going to give her my affection. And I'm going to give her my attention. You can't just say, I'm not going to do the negative. You've got to do the positive. You've got to recognize. You've got to resolve. And you've got to replace. Okay, so my third one was I made the decision that good intentions weren't simply enough. I had to get some skills. And if you know Napoleon Dynamite, girls like guys with skills. Yes, we do. I decided that I would be a good forgiver. Uh, I like what Ruth Bell Graham said. This is Billy's wife. She says, marriage is the union between two good forgivers. There's a great book out on forgiveness. Uh, Let me see if I have it. I would like to recommend it. If forgiveness is an issue in your marriage, this book will help a lot. What did I do with that? It's worth it. Let me get this for you. Okay. Uh, It's called Choosing the Gift of Forgiveness by Benner and Harvey. Somebody said, "Uh uh-huh. Somebody's read it. It's a very, very good book. Very helpful. If you hold a grudge, you don't trust the judge. There's only one judge, right? And so we don't want to be the grudge holders. Forgiveness doesn't mean that the offense against you is okay. It means that you will not allow the offense to contaminate you or your relationship with bitterness or any other evil work. Uh, I may have been affected by something that Tony did, but I'm not going to stay an ongoing victim of it by retaining the offense. I like what Lewis Smead says. He says that to forgive someone is to set a person free, and you find out that person was you as the forgiver. It's very good to remember that. Unforgiveness keeps you a victim. This is a powerful gift God has given us, the ability to forgive. And we'd be very wise to take him up on this gift. Mm -hmm. Amen. Uh, I made the decision that I would follow the Bible's instructions as authoritative uh, on how a husband is to treat his wife. And I think that phrase, husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church. There's a power in that verse that I think, gentlemen, we can spend our whole life asking God, God, show me more about how Jesus loved the church and gave himself for her. And, you know, the way Jesus washed the feet. See, a lot of people think, well, the Bible's instructions about marriage are harsh and authoritative. And there are some people that when they think of the Bible about marriage, they think, yeah, wives, submit to your husbands. You know, and they think that, You know, the Bible teaches some kind of dictatorial, demeaning, degrading. Well, you know, the Bible says to husbands, love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. Guys, if we can ever grasp the meaning and the depth of that, wives will be very happy to submit to that because husbands are not dictators. And wives are not doormats. There is a mutuality of the, the love of 
Jesus to the church, that when the church really sees how much Jesus loves us and what it means that He gave Himself, we willingly, voluntarily, and joyfully submit to and surrender to His Lordship. It's not a dictatorship. And, and I have found that, that the headship of the husband, if it does reflect the headship of Christ over the church, that it's far more focused on a husband fulfilling his responsibilities toward his wife than it is of demanding authority. How did Jesus give himself for the church? How did he become the head of the church? He did not do it by demanding submission from the church. He did it by giving himself to the church. And, and then the submission was a voluntary response. So just all these decisions that are, are um, in there, First uh, Peter 3, 7, give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel that your prayers may not be. And it doesn't say she is the weaker vessel. It says, as the weaker vessel. Now, there are some areas where Lisa is the weaker vessel. Yes, when you took the mouse out of the I did that attic. the other day. Yes, yes, I enjoyed being the weaker vessel in I that moment. I got that mouse, he... hauled him out of the attic. Yeah. Dead. Dead. And uh, she wouldn't go in there. But, you know, there are some areas where she's weaker. But listen, let me tell you this. There are some areas where she's stronger than me. She's way better with a checkbook. She's way better with certain details than I am. And, and the husband being stronger in some areas does not mean he's superior. The wife being weaker does not mean she's inferior. It just means I have some strengths that Lisa doesn't have. She has some strengths that I don't have. We're not superior. We're not inferior. We're heirs together of the grace of life. And where I am stronger, I serve her with my strength. Where she's stronger, she serves me. And that, then you have the kind of partnership that God desires. That's what the Bible teaches. Uh, what about uh, Colossians 3.19? It says uh, to husbands in the Amplified, Colossians 3.19 says, Do not be harsh or bitter or resentful toward them. Yeah. Telling husbands not to be that way toward their wives. Those are not ideas to me. Those are commands to me. Um, I have submitted myself. So even if my flesh felt like doing something else, these are my commands from heaven that I am submitted to. And whatever God tells me to do, He'll give me the power to do. So the Word is my authority in my marriage. Okay, my last decision, not my last decision, but the last decision for tonight is that I would be committed to the relationship. To me, that meant reading books. That meant uh, learning how to communicate because he, um, you know, we had some communication issues. And so I had to learn how to say words in a way that he could hear them easier, better. Um, you know, women, sometimes we use words that, offend the husband right off the bat. We don't get very far if we use words like that. So I needed to learn what worked with Tony, you know. How, how, could, we, um, how could we really cause each other to understand what was going on on the inside? So we, we actually did some counseling on some of that. Mm -hmm. um, we were doing, the, we did that 
so we'd be able to help other people counsel or help other people in counseling, but it actually helped us. Yeah. Um, some small things that we learned yeah. that really had made a difference. Mm -hmm. So um, just kind of a extended learning. What do they call that? Uh, continual con, con, continued education. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of good books out there, and and I'll tell you some more books later on. Um, I wanted to invest my efforts physically emotionally and financially in this um, relationship. I wanted to be committed to him to, to cause our life to be the best that it could be. And that meant I had to be good with money. That meant I had to um, be emotionally well within myself. You know, there was a season in my life where... Um, I was not emotionally well. I had anxiety issues and anxiety attacks, and I needed to take care of myself at that time, so I did. And I went to the doctor, and I did the things that the doctor said, but in order for our relationship to be healthy, I needed to be healthy. And so in those kind of ways, I just wanted to be committed. And even now, after 34 years, I'm still finding some ways, you know, that I can be committed to our relationship. And I want to have the right kind of attitude towards those things and apply myself to it. It bears good fruit. And you know what? I want good fruit in my marriage. I want our marriage to be a testimony. And, and I want to enjoy our relationship. And I do. But it's taken hard work on both of our parts to do that. Yep. Uh, my fifth decision, I, I need to share a story to set this up. Oh, boy. Uh, is this I, an approved story? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. This is an, you've heard I never me share this before. Um, we try not to shock each other with any certain disclosures here. Um, I was doing a funeral once, and um, uh, the gentleman that had passed away was probably he he was maybe maybe sixty. He wasn't a, a super old gentleman, and. Um, it was at the funeral home, that, like the visitation beforehand, and, and the widow um, came up to me and said, Brother Cook, she said, I need to tell you something. And this guy that had died was a super likable guy in our church. Everybody liked this guy. He was just Mr. Personality, you know, never met a stranger. Everybody liked him and all that. And um, she said, now, I'm not going to say this to anybody else. But she said, I just want you to know. She said, if you don't see me uh, grieving and weeping and acting like the forlorn widow, she said, I just want you to know. Uh, she said, I know everybody like my husband. But she said, they did not live with him. She said, he was not an easy man to live with. And she said, he was one person in public, but she said, he was a totally different person behind closed doors. And she said, if there's any emotion I've been experiencing since he's passed away, you know, a couple of days ago, she said, it's relief. She said, now I'm not going to tell anybody because she said, there's no need for me to tarnish his reputation. She said, nobody knows you know, some of the dark issues in his life. But she said, I just want you to know that if you don't see me in deep mourning 
she said, I just want you to know why. And so I thanked her for telling me. I had no idea what to say. I mean, what do you say to that? Yeah. You know, well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad he's dead too. If you, <laughs> you know, what do you say? You know, glad your burdens, glad your burdens are relieved. Um, and, and I don't know, maybe this is, maybe, maybe this is kind of egocentric, but you know, my mind, just like I had that mini vision of Pastor Mark when he was 86, I kind of flashed forward, you know, in my own life and I got to thinking now, if I kick the bucket before Lisa does, what would she say? You know, would she say to somebody, you know, well, I just want you to know, Tony wasn't easy to live with. You know, people thought he was a good minister or whatever, Bible teacher, but I'm pretty relieved. And I thought, you know, I'd better be on my best behavior. Because, like, if I die before she does, I want her to spend, like, 30 days lying on my grave. (laughs) That's what I want. Can I just get a billboard on the highway that says, I miss you, Tony? Would that be good enough? That would be enough. Yeah, that would be enough. You You don't have to spend 30 days... At the cemetery. But anyway, so why don't we, on this high moment, why don't we go ahead? Is now a good time to take yeah. a break? And um, uh, what was your fifth point? My fifth point, I'm sorry. Here, sorry, thank you. You are so observant. It was her. You are so, such a brilliant man. I made the decision at the end of my life, I wanted my wife to be genuinely thankful and to feel that she had been blessed to have been my wife. I didn't want her to feel that she had simply gritted her teeth and had tolerated me throughout our marriage. That was my fifth decision. So, wow. I didn't want her to say bad things privately at no, no. visitation. There'll be plenty of people to do that. <laughs> wow. Isn't that awesome? Just think we got another session to go tonight now. How are we doing the CDs? I need a little help from my staff. How is this happening? CDs, orders, different things like that. Okay.